So here we are, March, March 11th, Daylight Savings. Those of us in Alaska, Daylight Savings means that the sun will go down today at about 8, 8 o'clock, I believe. But don't worry, you folks down there, we still have three, four feet of snow. So, but we're winning on daylight now. March 11th, 2018, lecture discussion number 14 on the book of Joel, kind of. Because as is usually the case, as we proceed along in a series, someone or some ones will ask me to include a passage. Uh, predominantly, it will be from the Gospels, the four Gospels, and being renowned far and wide for my compliancy, my docility, I'm predisposed to accommodate. I take requests. I should get a jar. I think that would be appropriate and and I could use the income. But I do it on the basis that when an initiative is taken to request exposition of a passage, that generally indicates a universal condition. What I mean by that is if a very motivated person of the class of you folks are from the Internet or stymied by a section of verses, it's likely that they have company and that most people are also Likewise, stymied or affected in a way that they don't see clarity there. So once again, I will take advantage of that principle and bring you to your attention a difficult verse. Um, verses, actually. If you wish, we can call this things that are the other Daniel's fault. I thought that I would do it really fast and go through it, but I've got 16 pages. So that's brutal. And this is really a difficult subject, and, um, and that's good. Let me uh, let it be known anyway, however, that once again, all things that we're talking about Joel usually, and we actually are again today. You'll see Joel here. All things find themselves returning to Genesis 3, uh, which will most often include Revelation 9 and therefore Joel 2 and 3. And that's going to happen with this passage today. Today is going to seem like a diversion, but it's really not. As soon as the other Daniel brought it to me last week, I knew that it would fit in very easily, and it will. It is Matthew 11 and Luke 2, or 10, sorry, Luke 10. So that's where we'll be today. I want you to try to find out whether how it fits into Joel without me prodding you so much. It's actually Matthew 11. 20 through 24. That's where the difficulty is. Luke 10, 12 through 15. And I'm going to confident, confidently submit uh, that uh, you have not heard a sermon on these verses. Some of you have probably been to church as long as I have. I won't tell you how long it's been, but it's a lot of years. But I'm fairly confident that you have not heard a sermon on these verses and as you know, I was explaining to the other Daniel, I own hundreds, maybe at least a thousand or more theological books. And they're scattered everywhere because I'm a neat freak. <laughs> That's going to get a laugh when Lori hears it. She runs screaming from the room when I talk about how organized I am. Jumps out windows. Doesn't come back for months. It's really, it's really amazing. It might be double that. I, I just looked at the bookcases and said, okay, and started counting and counting, the, and I got up to a 1,000 really quickly. It might be double that. I just stopped out of uh, mercy. And of those, there might be, I might have 25 commentaries, scholarly works, on the book of Matthew. And just for fun, I, I, liked, I knew this already, but I just wanted to go through them and find out how many that of those commentaries attacked Matthew 11, 20 through 24 with a vigor, and the answer is zero. They'll mention it quickly, they'll go in passing, but then they run and hide. And I consider it to be quite valuable to notice these verses or those verses that are universally avoided, because such verses immediately become my favorites. And though, uh, these are those which, if they are expositorily addressed, they are given very cursory exp explanations, shallow. Matthew 11, 20 through 24 is in this category, verses of whom it must not be spoken. They're the forbiddens. 
I think you might understand why here when we get to it. I hope that you will. And if they are read or taught, it's rare that all of the consequences of them are addressed. Again, this is what? This is fantastic. This means there's something amazing here. Especially so if they are the spoken words of the Creator God Himself. And that is the case. Jesus Christ says these words. Those verses. He knows what He's saying. Duh. He's omniscient God. Matthew 11.24 checks off all the boxes of the difficult passages, which again is wonderful. Great treasures are hidden here. Understanding that God hides things is important to you. He intentionally hides his truth. Truth's wisdom is, is hidden. We are ordered to search out the secret things of God. Just to give you an example. If you've seen your soul or your spirit, as you know, and I wasn't going to talk of this, my beloved uh, German shepherd died at 16 years and three months a few days ago. And I watched her die. Not good. Affected me badly. I knew I wasn't going to see the spirit. The spirit soul is hidden. Why? I wanted to see it. Hides the spirit's soul from the physical. Now you have Elisha, Gehazi. He shows him the spiritual reality. But why does God hide things? Very important for you to know. He has hidden stuff here that is amazing. And again, we are ordered to search out the secret things of God. And knowing this is crucial when you are studying scripture. Okay, so let's take a very quick 16-page run at this. (laughs) At least you're going to wait for the chili. I mean, come on. You get chili. It's kind of a reward system here. If you stick through, stay awake through more than 15% of the sermon, you get chili. That's the rule. As long as you vote for Adina. I'm kidding. But you laughed so much the first time, and I thought Carlin was going to run up and throw things at me. I wanted to make the, go with the same joke again. Comedy is hard. When you get get a joke that makes 15 people laugh, you're going to keep pushing it. That's how it works. Okay, here we are. Matthew 11, 20 through 24. Then, wow, stop right there. Then, this is something he's doing after he has done something else. Then he began to rebuke the cities. So there's something that has happened, and now he rebukes the cities in which most of his mighty works. Wow. This is a word that always causes me frustration. Not because it it deserves it. It does not. Because it is never, ever explained properly. It's explained all right, always wrong. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. (coughs) Excuse me. Did not repent. We are now where? Joel 3. Genesis 3. Joel 2. Revelation 9. So it does, I hope you understand, uh, fit in very, very well. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, Sidon, let me ask to say this, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Oh, anytime God says if, it's time to start. This is omniscient God saying if. Stop. You gotta reconcile that. Why would he say if? They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So he's saying this to Capernaum and Chorazin and Sidon or Sidon. But I say to you, or Bethsaida, I'm sorry. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon or Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. Now, 
Matthew uses this word differently. And when he uses it, he means the lake of fire. For if the mighty works which were done to you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. How many times did he say mighty? How many times did he say woe? This is God speaking. Does he know every place he has said mighty and every place he has said woe in his word? Yes, he does. Now, what are the foremost issues? Well, if, God's saying if, tolerable. It does appear that uh, Capernaum is set aside and is in a special characterization or category. So, first, what we got to do is we have to know that we have read Matthew 11, 20 through 24 out of order. Again, I started by saying then. Having an awareness of the order can't be underestimated. So, we've got to go back to the foundation of this. The foundation, of course, starts at Matthew 11, 1 through 4. So, let's do that. I'm going out of order on purpose so that you can now start to fit the pieces together, knowing what the pieces are. Now, it came to pass, when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples, that he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples, why two, and said to him, God, he said to Christ, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. That's the foundation for what he says about these three cities, of which one of them, he says, it's better to be Sodom than you. That's not good news. Next, the statements of God himself in the flesh, they build to Matthew eleven ten through 15. So let's get that done. For this is he of whom it is written... Christ is saying this about John the Baptist. Behold. When God says behold, that's a stop sign. Something extraordinary is now being said to you that has implications and significance that you will not understand until you study it completely. So don't go past it in a hurry. Make a note to self. Note to self, I'm not going to understand what comes next. I have work to do. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among these born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. Well, that's interesting. And the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. <coughs> Excuse me again. <coughs> now, we have barely enough to consider, enough time to consider the, what these, these are the astonishing words of Christ. And I'm just going to concentrate now on 11 through 20 through 24. And hopefully you have begun to see the incredible mysteries that are here. Just start making a list. I'm going to have to race. John sends him two disciples. Because John's in, in prison. Does John know what's going to happen to him? Oh, yeah. John's going to be executed. He knows it. He, in fact, is beheaded. This is what Christ says. He sends two disciples. Are you the coming one or should we wait for another? Christ says, tell John what you see and hear. The blind. Blind see, lame walk. What does lame usually mean when Christ says it? It means amputees. How did they get that way? Lepers. Cleansed. It's not necessarily in order. Deaf here. Why are they deaf? 
the dead raised. That's going to be very important. And the poor have the gospel. That's what Christ answers, are you the coming one? He gives John's disciples that information. And then he says, of John the Baptist. Christ says this of John the Baptist. There has not one there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Is that your opinion of John the Baptist? That's God's opinion of John the Baptist. It's fascinating to me how few people study John the Baptist. John is then the greatest of the prophets, so titled by God himself, the Lord God Almighty. John the Baptist is without dispute then identified as a critical component of what's going on in Matthew chapter 11. Christ singles him out as the greatest man prophet that has ever risen. So whatever analysis we're going to have to come up with or what one may present as to the meanings of Matthew 11, John the Baptist is going to have to be in part of it. It's going to have to be integral at its core, if you will. Why does Jesus Christ refer to John the Baptist as the greatest of all prophets? Let's make another list of prophets. Who is greater, John the Baptist or Moses? Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, just to give you a couple Who's the greatest prophet of those? John the Baptist. Who's the judge of these things? God himself. Does he know? Of course he does. He's omniscient God. He gets to decide. He's the decider. What makes John the Baptist the greatest? I'll give you a couple of ideas. Is it the order in which he comes? The timing that makes John the Baptist the greatest. If you decide that it is the timing, his order in the, in the sequence of prophecies, of prophets, why is he the greatest? Anyway, John the Baptist heard about the works of Christ. He sends two of his disciples. They ask Jesus a question. Are you the coming one or do we look for somebody else? And the answer is, tell John The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Why is this the answer to John's question? And when John hears this, does he know that his question has been answered? Absolutely, he does. So what do they know that we don't know? Besides everything. Now start asking the most obvious of the obvious questions. Doing so is always helpful. Who are these people, these blind, lame, leopard, deaf, dead, poor people? Who are they? Where were they? When did these things happen to them? When were they blinded, made lame, become lepers, deaf, dead, poor? When did that happen? Who are they? Where are they? When did they get to be the way they are? How many are there? How many people are there? When you read that, how many people did you think there were? You know what most people think? It's, it is just inexplicable. They think there's one or two blind guys, a couple of lame guys, maybe one deaf guy, that would be me. A few lepers. Oh, I'll give them, they'll say, I'll give them eight. Is that the number that you have? How many? Because that's very important. You decide, O oh, detective of Scripture. How many people are on that list? More obvious questions. How dead is dead? How dead were they? Fifteen minutes, five minutes, three minutes, two minutes? Most people assume because they have seen on TV or in some... I don't even know what to say. I'll start ranting. They have seen in some performance art in some church that the raising of the dead occurs about maybe 30 seconds after the dying person. Is that what you think? How dead is dead? How many dead do I have? Starting to figure that out will help you understand what he means in 20 through 24. 
How long had they been dead? How lame is lame? Are they amputees? I'm going to submit they're clearly amputees. How blind is blind? As you know, in the military of the Jewish nation, when you were captured by an Assyrian, or if you were captured by most of the enemies of Israel, they, they cut your eyes out and cut your ears off. So how, and, and cut your tongue out and sent you back as a wounded soldier. Said that many, many times. How lame is lame? How blind is blind? How deaf is deaf? How many are there? How big a crowd do I have? How many did he raise? How many did he heal? Because he says they are what? What does he call them? Mighty. Who calls it mighty? God himself in the flesh. What's his definition of mighty and what's your definition? Eight, ten people? How close to death are the lepers? Note the conclusion to all of this. The mightiest of the works here is exactly what you would expect. The poor have the gospel preached to them. That's what God calls the culmination. The 153 fish. Remember, John gives you seven things that he sets out in the book of the gospel of John as incredible evidences of the deity of Christ. And he ends it all. He says, if those seven have not convinced you that Christ is God himself, then I'll give you the most amazing thing. They caught 153 fish. And and you've heard me lecture on that many times. It's all over the Internet. For those of you on the Internet, I have done 153 fish. Find Supper Dave and attack him. Now, he'll say, I'm watching someone that may or may not be uh, Dave say that I have uh, I have not completed it. I think I have given you all the information. However, this is the same pattern. This is the 153 fish of this. <sighs> That's the conclusion, the definitive proof. That Christ is creator God, the God of Israel, having come to his nation. And, of course, John the Baptist understood that immediately. Okay, a couple of quick uh, points. Uh, Let's roll all the way back to Matthew 9. Because this also is, I guess, what you wish, the, the first verse of all of this. So he got into a boat and crossed over and came to his own city. That tells you where he is when he is talking about all of these things, 11 through 20 of Matthew. Christ came to his own city. His city is Capernaum. Christ is in Capernaum. It is his base of operations. What's the obvious question? Why is Capernaum the base of operations for the Lord God Almighty as he is in his public ministry? Why Capernaum? John's two disciples are given a first-hand eyewitness experience. Do you think he just told them and walked away? Because he doesn't say that. Go tell John what? What you what? Hear. And what you see. So all of these people? How long did that take? How many are there? How long did it take? Because John's two disciples were given a first-hand eyewitness experience. Tell John the things which you hear and see. These two heard and saw. They hear and see the dead raised. That's a neat question. Because what does a raising dead sound like? They get to hear it. How Again, how many? I, I'm going to tell you how many I think it is. Thousands. How do I th- why do I think that? Because they heard it. And God calls it mighty works. How many? A lot. Where are dead? If I've got to have a lot of dead people, where do I go? To the graveyard. Buried. How Dead is dead. How long were they dead? Hundred years? Five hundred years? Thousands of years? If you have the five minute, thirty second view, you're completely missing this. These are mighty works. Christ raises them up 
John's two disciples see and hear them raise up. Did Jesus insert time into the resurrections of these people? What I mean by that, did he do it instantly, which he could. But this fact that they're going to see and hear it makes me wonder, how did this happen? And uh, as you know, Ezekiel 37, the dry bones prophecy, the dry bones process, Ezekiel 37, 1 through 10, there's a rattling of the bones coming together, bone to bone, sinew and flesh, the breath of life. There's a... There's an order to it. Did Christ slow that order down so these two disciples of John could watch this happen? And I'm asking you to imagine exactly, specifically, what was it the Almighty God did to answer the questions of the question of John the Baptist? And pay attention to where he did it, Capernaum that he says exalts itself to heaven because Capernaum, again, is compared to Sodom and not favorably. Capernaum is to be judged more harshly than Sodom, brought down to the lake of fire. Again, the case that Matthew is using Hades as as the lake of fire and not Sheol, I believe, is the most defensible position. Maybe if we have time, um, I'll back that up. Speaking of backing up, let's back up some Now, being that I have a penchant for Joel 2 and 3 and Revelation chapter 9, I cannot overlook these two woes. Woe, woe. I've got two woes in Revelation 9. I have three woes total, but I've got two in Revelation 9. Woe carries with it an impending time of torment, of pain, of writhing, of gnawing, of misery and sorrow, and the city of Capernaum, uh, was facing severe judgment and condemnation. Now, it should be said the occupants of the Capernaum are, are, <coughs> I'm sorry, are the city. There's no question about that. But the city and the occupants have distinctions. Individuals are not necessarily in this, in the uh, condemnation of the city. The city is condemned. But not every individual is the city. I hope that makes sense. It's a distinction that doesn't seem to have a difference, but there is one, however slight. It needs to be acknowledged. Obviously, <coughs> excuse me, I'm really struggling here. More medicine. That's my revenue stream. In case you were wondering, I advertise some of you. Worcestershire, Lee and Parents has not contacted me as... as it's the word loyal, as I have been. I put Lee and Perrins. I want you to know, Mr. Worcestershire, if that's really your name. Maybe it's Lee and Perrins or their name. Are they still alive? Probably not, huh? Founded what? But anyway, I put it on my ice cream. Now, that's devotion. I, it's because I can't taste anything. <clears throat> I just All I got left in my life is the burning sensation in the mouth. That's all I got. And I'm learning to like it. It'll happen to you. Quit laughing at me. Remember when, when you laughed at your parents and they, when they told you you would have kids just like yourselves? Naha. Not laughing now, are you? Okay. I'm a professional, so where am I? <laughs> Obviously, the blind, deaf, dead, lepers, lame, and the poor would be likely candidates for repentance and belief. Because he says, I did these mighty works and you did not repent. He says that to Capernaum. Incredible evidence is given. It had no impact on the residences, residences ease, I guess, of, uh, of Capernaum. Why not? Christ did mighty works in these cities, but they did not repent. And so here we are again at Joel 2 and 3, Revelation 9, Genesis 3, once more. Eve, Eve, the woman, is the first to repent of her unbelief. That is why her name is changed to Eve, as you know. Can't repeat it enough. Repentance begins in Genesis 3. We see it dramatically in Revelation 9, which is a repeat, if you will, of the prophecy or the actual prophecy fulfilled of Joel 2 and 3. And with all of this undergirding now, we can address the great mysteries of Matthew 11. How am I doing for time? Oh, I'm fantastic. 
For if the mighty works which were done in you, these three cities, had been done in Sidon and Sodom, Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom would have repented for their unbelief in Christ. That is what the text seems to say. They would have believed that Jesus Christ is the one who comes, the creator of all things. As an aside, whatever you have uh, thus far imagined to be to be mighty, defining mighty. Hopefully, you have begun to define mighty correctly. I'm bludgeoning you if I can to get you off of the simple. You must have these mighty works as astonishing and unfathomable. They're at that level. They are mighty works as defined by God, not what is submitted today in our time as miraculous. Charlatans are plentiful. They abound. They cheat the flock day and night. They're relentless. They're everywhere. They're universal, ubiquitous. Pick your word. They are frauds and imposters. Do not equate what we see in here to that which the Lord God Almighty did in these cities. Don't say that man is doing the same that Christ did. It's not truer. But I digress. It will be more tolerable for Sodom than it is for Capernaum on Judgment Day. What will be more tolerable for Sodom? What's he talking about? What's Sodom got that's better than what Capernaum is going to get? Lighter sentence, wouldn't you agree? Less judgment. Why does Sodom get less judgment than Capernaum? Sodom's condemnation will not be as severe as Capernaum's. Sodom's wickedness was very grave. The Bible says the outcry was great. That's a, Sodom's wickedness and evil is just stunningly high. Genesis 18:20. I didn't say it. I just thought it. Getting better. Who was crying out? To God. Because God, God says, the blood is crying out. Whose blood is crying out to Christ at Genesis 18? Where's the first place in the Bible that blood cries out to God? He makes a mention of it. Genesis 4.10. Cain and Abel. Now Sodom has murdered and slaughtered tens of thousands of people. Why are they doing this and who are these people? And now the blood is crying out. The outcry, God says, is great. How good at math is God? What is God's definition of great? Because it's a number. Whose blood is crying out to Christ in Genesis 18? And Capernaum is worse than Sodom. We see this equivalency. We have Capernaum. And we have an equality of sorts to Sodom, except Capernaum, wickedness, their sin is greater, greater than or equal to Sodom, probably not equal to. But I have this relationship of the two. So I have to look at them as the same almost. But Capernaum has got the lead. Christ says they're worse. Sodom has less judgment than Capernaum. So I want to know, how many dead? Why are they dead? How long have they been killing them? What's their reason? Who's being killed? Why did he pick this as his base of operations? And then he says, Sodom would have remained to this day if I had done the mighty works that I did for you, Capernaum, in Sodom. What does remain to this day mean? What did you think it meant? I think we can conclude that Sodom would have been allowed to survive as a city. Let me read it again. For if the mighty works, uh, if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. 
And I think we can conclude that Sodom would have been allowed to survive. But that's not what happened, is it? You know the story. Don't ever watch the movies. They never get it right. Why doesn't Hollywood ever get anything right? Is it, is it because they're idiots? That's my first thought. Probably. Do they know they're idiots? Idiots never know they're idiots. It's the definition of idiot. I'm hoping someday I'll get hate mail from Hollywood. That's so far hasn't happened. I'm trying. I have, I have the bait in the water, but it's not working. I'm learning my insignificance every week. Jesus Christ went to Sodom physically. Why did he go there? He's physically there, pre-incarnate Christ. And he goes with two of his angels. So I hope you're seeing this relationship now between John the Baptist, Sodom, Capernaum, two disciples, two angels. Let's ask him questions about the angels. Who were they? You ever think about stuff like that? What were their names? This is God himself in the flesh, pre-incarnate Christ, a Christology, a Christophany, or Theophany, just like Melchizedek, just like the commander that meets Joshua. This is Jesus Christ. He's outside of time, as you know. He's the creator of time, and he brings two angels with him. Who are they? What's their names? And just one more simple question. How powerful are they? Christ and Abraham have this discussion about Sodom. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Adam, I'm sorry, Abraham intimates that there are believers in Sodom. Now, this is a dramatic theodicy. If you're on the Internet, I've covered dramatic theodicies before. This is the triune Godhead being portrayed in a way that us mere finite dummies can somehow grasp what's going on inside God. And he's uh, Christ is in the position of the holiness and the judgment that must render accountability for sin. And Abraham is the mediator between the wicked and God, in this case, who is coming uh, for judgment purposes. And so that is what's being displayed here. It's being acted out, if you will. And Christ informs... Uh, it's the same, it's the complement to Matthew 26, 36 through 46. That's Gethsemane, where this is happening again. Christ replicates what he and Abraham are doing, what Genesis 15 is about at Matthew 26, Gethsemane 36 through 46. No time to include the explanation. I know some of you have never heard it. I'm going to say this. Christ informs Abraham that he will not destroy Sodom for the sake of ten. They go through this discussion. Starts out, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? And he says he will not destroy Sodom for the sake of ten. He will not slay the righteous with the wicked. That's what God says, Genesis 18:25. So we have Capernaum and Sodom sharing some attributes. Both are haughty, proud, exalted. It said that of Sodom in Ezekiel 16:50. It said that of Capernaum in Matthew 11:23. So what's the next question? What are they proud of? How come they're so puffed up about what? What do they think they have done that makes them so happy? Capernaum sees incredible mighty works doesn't faze them. They're going to keep killing people. You go do your mighty works. We don't care. Why not? What's Sodom doing that blood outcry is so great? There's some kind of equivalency. What are they proud of? Both have blindness. Did you notice that? In Capernaum, Christ is healing the blind people. How many again? Let's say it's a couple thousand. How fast does he do it? What does Capernaum think when they see blind people being 
And remember, he will spit in the dirt and form an eye and put it in a person who has no eye's head. That's what he does. He's God. Making an eye is no big deal. What did Capernaum think when he does stuff like that in front of them? But they both have blindness. The leaders of Sodom, as you know, were struck blind, and Capernaum saw the sight of the blind restored. Again, I want to know who blinded them. The men of Sodom, both great and small, it says, how many men of Sodom, both great and small, surrounded Lot's house, and how many, therefore, were blinded by Christ? For how long? We know the brimstone, the judgment didn't come until daylight. How much time was Sodom given from the blindness of these men to the brimstone? How many men were there again? Lot had time. He warned people, Genesis 19:14. How did the leaders of Sodom because they're great and small. Who are the small? Who are the great? As God defines them. Why were there small and great there? All of them were blinded. I'm trying to ask you to put yourself into the situation as much as you can. You're surrounding Lot's house because you are going to try to do what? What's in there that you want? There's a couple of angels in there. How powerful are these guys, these angels? How much danger are they in? Did you think, oh, no, they've surrounded the angels. What would be the equivalent for us? Oh, no, the 10 of us or 15 of us. Okay, let's count. Not very many. Even on chilly day. Um, We all have rowboats and we're going to surround the USS Nimitz. How much trouble is an aircraft carrier in with us out there with our BB guns and our rowboats? How powerful are these angels? How much danger are they in? Are they in any danger? Did you ever think that these puny little human beings were going to threaten the well-being of these two powerful angels of Christ? Because that would be what? No, I wouldn't say that. That's impolite. I can't believe you'd say something like that. <laughs> okay, I've said it all the time. But it would to be polite, it would be not wise to come to that conclusion. But I want to know, I've got a bunch of blind people, hundreds, maybe thousands of blind people. Don't know how many. Could easily be a couple of thousand there. Pretty good sized city and is very wicked. And I had great people there. If I've got the great people there, then I have the small people there because small people have to go where the great people go. And they all got blinded. Just imagine you're one of the small people. And you're blinded. Struck blind. How do you respond to that? You go, wow, I'm blind. Probably not a good day. What do you do? Do you still keep trying to find the angels? You just got blinded. How many of those blind people were reasonable? In other words, how many of them stopped? How many of them retreated? How many of them fled and ran? How many cowards do I have in the 2,000 guys Surrounding this house. That's a warning, isn't it? Because what, what didn't happen to those men? They were just blinded. How many of them ran? How many heeded the warnings of Lot? Put Again, what would you do? Why didn't Christ give Sodom the same mighty works that he gave Capernaum? Because he didn't. I should mention that both Capernaum and Sodom have never been found. Both cities have been erased and they were prominent cities. There's no shortage of writers 
in commentary who lament the unfairness they see implied here. If the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, Sodom would have remained until this day, and they don't notice that remained is a what? It's a reference of what? It is a description of what? Time. From the creator of time. If mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, Sodom would have been given more time. Isn't that what's being said? So how, how much time was uh, Sodom given? They weren't given a lot of time. Did they, were they given any time? Those men that surrounded the house, how much time did they get? They were struck blind. How much time was that? How long were they blind? Why were they blind? Why wasn't Sodom given more time? Would Sodom have repented as did Nineveh? What are the other options if they don't repent or if they do repent? What are the implications? How many were saved in Sodom ultimately is what I'm asking you, aren't I? How many of the struck blind guys went, I'm not doing this. This is not what I thought. I'm getting out of here. How many took that mercy, because that's mercy being struck blind, isn't it? Remember the difference between the flood of Noah and the judgment of Revelation 19. The flood of Noah, there's time in drowning, lots of time. We've been over that for weeks, haven't we? There's no time in Revelation 19. They're instantly done. Why aren't these men in Sodom? They're incredibly wicked. Why aren't they instantly destroyed? They were given time. How much time? Hours at minimum. Would they repent? How many repented? Or would Sodom, would Sodom have ceased their slaughtering without repentance? Obviously, this is a whole discussion about repentance. I hope I've made that clear. Jesus Christ provided, demonstrated his creative power at Capernaum. He showed miracle after miracle. They were stunning. They're impossible to duplicate. They've never been duplicated. You can't replicate what God can do. And Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida did not repent. Why not? What did they go back to doing? They saw amazing things. I got at least a couple of thousand men that were struck blind. If Sodom had seen all those miracles that Capernaum did, they would have been given more time. Well, that's an interesting question. Tyre and Sidon or Sidon would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Clearly, there's a distinction between all these cities, isn't there? What is the difference between remained that Sodom would have done? and sackcloth and ashes and repent that Tyre would have done. What are the implications of more tolerable? I'm just throwing questions at you now, aren't I? Trying to get us to the chili buffet. I'm doing pretty good. More tolerable introduces a degree, doesn't it? It's a degree reference, which raises the question, are there degrees, incremental levels of condemnation? Because the text implies that there are. If so, what's the criteria? Hopefully you have recognized the extent of the difficulties in these verses that God has spoken to you in Matthew 11 through 4. It is up four verses. Matthew 11, 20 through 24 can be found in the hard sayings of the Bible books. Um, and I was saying that to the other Daniel who caused all of this today. So, last in the buffet line again. Actually, that's not typically true. I own all these books. You know, the 725 baffling Bible questions answered now books. I've got them all because I thought, well, let's see what these guys say. It's worth the 20 bucks. Guess what it wasn't worth? No, that's the 20 bucks. They hide from Matthew 11, 20 through 24. These are tough questions. Okay, more questions, just to keep it fun, what I call fun. The solutions lie in knowing and asking the right questions. That's why I do it, and I hope you are coming along with me. Christ has come to Sodom. Two angels have gone before him. The men of Sodom have surrounded the angels, and Lot is protecting, isn't he? Who is he protecting? 
Is he protecting the angels? Please no. Why didn't the angels kill the wicked men? They didn't. Why not? Are those wicked men? Have you judged them deserving of being killed instantly? God doesn't do that. Strikes them blind. Gives them what? The angels are not in danger. Please get that out of your context. Two incredibly powerful angelic beings left unnamed, but I think you can figure out who they might be, selected by Jesus Christ to accompany him to Sodom. The outcry is great, and he's going to stop it. He's going to stop the slaughtering that's going on in Sodom. In case you don't know they're being slaughtered, God tells you the outcry is great. That's murder. Did Lot expect the angels would kill the men gathered around his house? I think he did. It helps you understand why he offered his daughters, because that's a tremendously difficult subject. He knew that there was no possibility his daughters would be taken. He knew these men. He knew all of them. Why did he know them? These are the great men of the city and the small men that always are with them. How does Lot know them? He knows them all by name. Well, he sits in the midst of them. It says so. He's at the gates of the city. He's one of the what? Great men of the city. He has his own small men. He knew them all. And he knew what they wanted and what they'd do. And he knew they wouldn't take the daughters. Why did he offer the daughters? He knew they wouldn't take them. Stalling, isn't he? How often did this kind of action occur where these men surrounded the city and Lot watched it happen and did nothing? He knew this procedure, if you will. Again, why didn't the angels slay the wicked here? Instead, they struck them blind. And why blindness? That doesn't seem... Why not just transport them to another part of the city? Why not walk through them like Christ did all the time? They couldn't even... He walked through people physically. What was the reasoning of the blindness? Obviously, the blindness has some significant impact on these men. They, they, how long did it last? How much time was given to them? How did they respond? I'm repeating the questions. How many of the wicked men of Sodom who were struck blind repented? That's what I want to know. Any? What's the percentage? Bill has a theory. See him later. Let's keep going in this direction. How many in the city of Sodom are saved when the angels walk in there? How many children are in Sodom? How many captives are in Sodom? How many victims are in Sodom waiting to be victimized? Christ has come to end the great evil of Sodom. The first phase of ending the great evil Sodom is to strike the evil ones with blindness. Why is that the first thing you do? Because it is. This is omniscient God doing it. And that raises the most obvious of the most obvious question. What percentage of the evil ones of Sodom were blinded? I have a house. This is amazing artistic. I mean, wow. Thank you for going wow. I have them surrounded by men, I'll bring, okay, there they are. How many do I think are surrounded? I'm going to say 2,500. Thank you, I see those hands directing me, in case you think I have any authority here. How many men are in Sodom and Gomorrah? It's a big place. How many? We know, we could say, if I'm right, duh. 2,500 were blinded. I want to know how many were blinded in Sodom. How many men are in Sodom? Let's say we got 25,000. 
How many of the 25,000 men are blinded? Did the angels only blind these guys? Or did they blind everybody? I want to know. Because i got to get people out of there, right? How many people escaped? Just Lot and his two daughters and wife, who was remembered by Christ. She is set aside in a powerful way. She's not rebuked for what she did, in case you think she is. What percentage of the evil people of Sodom were blinded? I have a feeling that it was what? A hundred percent. Was it the entire city or just those in the proximity of Lot's house? You have to decide. I've got more questions. For the sake of the argument presented by those who see Christ as unjust, because they do. They say, oh, Christ is unjust here in Matthew 11, 20 through 24. If only he had done what he did in Sodom, he would have saved everybody in Sodom. Yes or no? Did he say he did these mighty works in Capernaum? How many were saved in Capernaum? They did not repent. Why not? Amazing. But he says Sodom would have remained. What does that mean? Does it mean they repented? What's the difference between remained and repented? There's got to be a difference. Because if he meant repented, he would have said repented. But he didn't say repent. He said that about Tyre, not about Sodom. What's the difference between Tyre and Sodom? How many Sodomites were going to repent when they're struck blind? Let's assume that he goes in there instead, just grant the hypothesis. It didn't happen. It couldn't happen. It wasn't what could happen because he's omniscient. But he raises people from the dead in Sodom. Let's imagine Christ does what he did in Capernaum, because Sodom equals Capernaum in some sense. And everyone who had been murdered in Sodom, he raises them from the dead. He heals everyone who's been made lame. He preaches the gospel to the poor. He does everything that he was going to do and that he did in Capernaum. How many Sodomites would repent if they saw the people they murdered resurrected? How long has the murdering been going on? Usually how long does God wait before he stops evil? Hundreds of years. So essentially this becomes the question of who would have remained in Sodom as well as why Zoar was spared. Remember, Lot said, I don't want to climb mountains because I'm, I'll get killed. Let me go to Zoar. And Sodom and Gomorrah were burned. Zoar, a little one, a small town, Lot sought to flee there. Why that? Why do you do that? Genesis 19, 18 through 22. Lot becomes afraid to stay there. Why is that? But I digress. If I have two factions, the saved and the wicked, come to be in Sodom, because some might have been saved by those mighty works. Certainly the ones that were resurrected and could see, uh, leprosy healed, the deaf, I've got to have some percentage. At least i got one out of what? Yeah, i got one that returned and praised Christ, right? I'd get some percentage of saved people. Now, how many saved people do I have? How many people were murdered? i got 10%. Resurrects what? Thousands. How many saved do I got? How much fear do they have of death? So i got two factions, saved and wicked. Now they come to be together in Sodom. Again, grant the premise that Christ would have done what he did in Capernaum. Who would prevail now? What would happen with that dynamic? Jesus Christ himself was there in person. Don't forget this. Sodom is equated to the tribulation in Scripture. I suggest you consider how Christ operates With regard to the tribulation, there comes a time when God abandons the wicked, allows them to choose evil, turns them over to their reprobate minds. He allows them to choose darkness, but he always, always, always offers time, salvation, and mercy. So where is that in Sodom? Find it. A key to all of this is Matthew 11, 20. Mighty works, they did not repent. Lastly, everybody loves lastly and finally here. Tyre and Sidon Sidon were allies of King David in history. They were friends of David. They were friends of Israel. They supported Israel. They were eventually destroyed. Who destroyed them? Do you know the story? Nebuchadnezzar came for them first. He couldn't get them. They fled to the island. He just wiped out the city on the coastline, but he gave up and went back. 
Hundreds of years later came Alexander the Great. He builds a bridge of dirt. He's the first one to recover the ocean. China got their ideas from him. He builds a bridge out there of dirt, takes his ships, and wipes out Tyre. How much time did they have? From David to Alexander. That's a lot of time. You have phones. You can figure that out. You don't need me. Type it all in. If mighty works which were done in you had been done entire, they would have repented sooner or faster. And that's what it says. How many entire repented? How many in Sodom repented? How many in the tribulation repent? Notice that they see the signal. This is a tremendous signal. And they get up, bang, they come in like they're related to me. It's amazing. Huh? I have trained you, that's right. The beatings have been effective. There you go. So there's your beginning of Matthew 11. How close did we come to solving it? Not bad. Could you figure out how it's solved? You're on your own. Why? Because if I feed you like little birds, you start. You have to be able to figure this out on your own. You have to. I'm old and run out of time. And I have to get you to the place where you think inductively.